So sometimes someone realizes, oh, I'm not doing something that's bad. I'm doing something that's kinky and I can do it in a healthy way, right? And so in that way, it is giving themselves permission to be kinky or to do sex the way they want to do it. I mean, we're taught that there's a right way to do sex and it's with a, a dominant man and a submissive woman, but don't talk about being dominant and submissive and, and put the penis in the vagina. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, my guest is kink doctor and sex therapist Dulcinea Pitagora, who, when I first met her, worked as a dominatrix in New York City. Now, when many people hear the word dominatrix, they tend to think of something along the lines of this. Oh, very good. Dominate the men who adore you. Cross them with your exquisite high heels. Oh, That was from a 2005 film called The Notorious Betty Page. Yet while dominatrix work can conjure faintly naughty and whimsical associations in popular culture, it's actually serious work with serious clients. Dulcinea actually preferred the term professional dominant to dominatrix, and I was first introduced to her world when she was my student at the Paris Writing Workshop in 2007. I teach nonfiction there, and while I've had the pleasure of working with many good student writers, few have evoked life experiences, and work experiences in particular, as fascinatingly as what I read in Dulcinea's essays. Part of this is a matter of context, of course, since not everyone's job takes place in an urban dungeon. Dulcinea no longer does dominatrix work. She's now a licensed sex therapist specializing in alternative sexualities, such as the kink, poly, trans, and sex work communities. She's actually filmed a pilot for a web series called The Kink Doctor. I've put a link to that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And our discussion of alternative sexualities makes up the bulk of our conversation, which was recorded in Dulcinea's office in New York City. So tell us, just in, in, in a 101 level way, describe work as a pro-dom, dominatrix, and okay. what that entails. Sure. So... I'll start out by saying I I did that for like around, I think around 10 years. Uh, and I retired from that industry, from sex work, you know, um, professional domination as a form of sex work. Not all pro-doms would identify as sex workers, I think, but most do. But I, I, have, I say that because I know people. This is just stuff I'm thinking of, so I'm saying it. But I retired from that about three years or three, four years ago now, maybe, as I was starting to practice as a therapist, because I couldn't go, I couldn't do both at the same time with the way my brain works. But anyway, at the time when we met, I think I was writing about my experience in working in a dungeon with other people, like in a commercial space, as opposed to operating independently, which I then changed to, which a lot of people do. So, um, but yeah, a dominatrix, I like to call, I like to use the phrase professional dominant just because I find the phrase dominatrix, like you say, it calls up a lot of imagery that's really stereotypical of this like sort of ball busting, like literally probably (laughs) ball busting, you know, very mean, you know, harsh female, um, wearing, you know, probably fetish gear, which is a thing, you know, wearing the, the clothing is definitely a thing. But just like being really mean and kind of cruel to people and, you know, and being paid for beating people, right, is I think the imagery. And I like to use professional dominant 
to describe the work that I did because to me that's more about the power exchange. Uh, to me, that's what it's always been more about. And I'm actually a lifestyle practitioner also. So before I became a pro-dom, which is kind of the shorthand version in the industry or even among clients, they'll say a pro-dom. Like that's just short for professional dominant really, uh, or professional dominatrix, which is the way people would say it. Because there are also lifestyle dominatrices or profession or dominance uh, or uh, meaning, people in the scene meaning just people that aren't doing it for money they're just they do it with their partners with their loved ones with you know whatever just in their life as a form of relationship for them so I was doing that before and then I realized when I was an undergrad which is I was just finishing I had just finished when I went to the your writing school or classes um, and by that time you'd been pro-dom for a couple years? Yeah, a few years. I can't remember. It must have been like a few years at that point. And so I was working in a house. And so there's, there are different ways to do it. Where, where I was at that point, I was working in what we call a house or a commercial dungeon where there was like a manager, you know, there was like an owner and a manager. And um, I chose this one because it was female run and it felt very like family, like it felt really supportive of each other because I had, I went to other spaces where it just seemed kind of cold and like not very, you know, it just didn't feel good in that space. So I didn't want to spend time in that space, whatever. And so I felt Meaning like you I sort of researched these places or you I, I interviewed them. Okay. I interviewed them. They thought they were interviewing me, but they didn't realize I was actually interviewing them. So I chose the one that felt best, which was this place I ended up working in. And um, yeah, it's just like the way it'll be. It'll be like there, there's a shift with several people scheduled. Uh, and then either you'll have appointments booked ahead of time through whoever does is answering the phones or managing the schedule. Or they'll just be walk-ins and you'll meet with people and then you'll decide uh, what what who's a good match and what people want to do, which is all the range of kinky things. Like, I mean, there are certain limits. Um, the difference in this kind of sex work uh, in this area, or like, I don't know if it's in the United States or if it was that time period or what, is that there's no sexual, like typical sexual interaction, like like uh, penis vagina intercourse or any like that kind of intercourse or like um, oral or manual, you know, um, sex like hand jobs or like there was none of that it's it's like um could be verbal interactions like ver humiliation or uh could be uh, administration of pain um through like beatings or spankings um or fetish stuff like foot worship or different kinds of fetish uh, role plays for example stuff like that so all that stuff would happen so that's in a commercial house. And then sometimes people transition, which is what I did, into working independently, which is in my own space, being in control of my own. It's better really for screening and having the aesthetic you want. And just really, I just wanted to see the people I wanted and do the things, you know. Well, I'm curious about the other half of this because there's sort of the the institution, uh, the dungeon. I mean, is that what it's called? Dungeon. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
where these services are, are rendered. And so it sounds like they're specifically fetish related and not sexual related. Like the sex acts weren't permitted. So people yeah. uh, t- find either sexual presumably or psychological uh, reasons for being humiliated or. Sure. Uh, like people, you know, get very turned on. I mean, it's a very, for a lot of people, for people into kink or BDSM, a lot of it's part of their sexuality. It's part of what turns them on. And then sometimes people don't want to do typical sex acts and other times people do. And so if, you know, and there are certainly plenty of sex workers who do both, you know, who integrate some kinky stuff into more typical kinds of sex, or maybe they'll first do kinky stuff and then have sex with them. Um, I'm just saying in like these kinds of um, professional dungeons, they don't do that uh, because it's just not, it's not the way it functions here. I think maybe in other countries it's different, like in Germany or Amsterdam, I think it's much different. Where it's legal, basically. It's legal probably in places where it's legal. But really the thing is, is I think what you were getting at is that kink and BDSM isn't necessarily about that, even though it is sexual for people. It's not necessarily about like the goal of then having typical intercourse or something or sexual interaction a lot for a lot of people um, the kinky part like the role play or whatever is going on in the kinky part is the point of of their that's sex for them even though other people would be like that doesn't look like sex at all like you know most people would say that i don't understand what you're talking about <laughs> you know well, i went to a porn convention years ago and um there was a big business in fetish clips um sure uh it was called, the uh, lawyer I talked to called it the Amway of, of porn, where at oh. home you can just film your feet pedaling an exercise bike and somewhere someone finds that um, erotic sure. and they apply the sexual energy to it, but it's not illegal in, in 50 states because yeah. it's just you pedaling your feet. Yeah. Um, one reason I asked about that is that I really want to see the other half of this relationship, which is the men who show up. Um, and it is, it's all, it's all genders, okay. but, but you're correct in your assumption that it's mostly men or, you know, like, yeah. like cisgender males is like mostly the people that are the clients. Can you throw a percentage on that? Oh, it's like vast majority. Like I would say, um, yeah, like 99%, 98%, okay. somewhere like between 95 and 99%. <laughs> because I seem to remember, you know, back when I was reading your writing in Paris, just, mm-hmm. um, I just learned a lot by reading your essays um, uh, because it was basically reporting on a world that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so is there a profile of the men who seek out this work? Um, I seem to recall that there were a lot of powerful men um, who were seeking a different emotional texture. Sure. Well, one thing to keep in mind that's important is uh, with this is this is sort of a this is an expensive service that, you know, it's it's a lot of privileged people can go because they can afford to pay for it and that's so like also, what's like how much like five hundred dollars an hour or that would be the high end for for um you know somebody who's very established i think in the scene um i think the range can start much lower like i i don't i'm really out of the loop these days so i'm sure that it's more expensive now than you know when i was but like it probably starts for you know, a couple hundred dollars for an hour session or something, or maybe less than that. I don't know. Probably less than that too for, for beginner type people or certain places. I don't know, but can certainly range up to what you're saying. Um, but still it's, or it, more, you know, depending on, you know, it's like, it's whatever they want to charge, I guess. But 
not something it's not a frivolous expense no and even if it's a hundred dollars for an hour like i don't you know it's not just anyone that can afford to go and like drop a hundred dollars to to do something for an hour so the reason i say that is it's important to remember that like you know the this is even though like yes it would be a lot of powerful men um so men in our culture and in many cultures make a lot more money so this is one reason like why men are are the majority of clients because they have more you know expendable uh income and um you know and so they're making more money and they're probably in the industries where you make the most money like in new york city anyway and so i'm not familiar with that that much with other cities but there's a lot of uh financial people, a lot of people working at Wall Street, or um, a lot of people traveling in from other places, because New York is a, a hub, really, where a lot of people travel in and out. But, you know, and there would be a lot of lawyers, although I think that industry is changing. Uh, but still, there's a lot of money in that. And, uh, you know, so whatever the, the people you would consider, like, that that make, can afford it, those are the people that would come in, because really, um, any, every, all types of people are kinky. It's not like because pro doms would see mostly this kind of a person, the profile that we're talking about, doesn't mean like that's mostly the kind of person who's kinky. Cause there is this stereotype where like powerful men, um, need to be submissive sexually because like, you know, they're too, they have to, they have to be too powerful the rest of the time. So they need to release stress by being submissive sexually, which is totally under like true for a lot of people. But that's not everyone. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's they can afford it, and so that's what we're talking about right now. But um, people in lifestyle, like you'll meet a lot of people that are just like all, just everyone. It's really a cross section of society. It's not like any kind of typical person. And, and that's probably something we'll work toward eventually for your therapy work because it's yeah, it's a different private um, perceptions of this is different. You know, yeah. you know everybody has their own you know, sexual profile or, or, or personal profile of how they are in the world versus people who have the agency to go to $100 an hour uh, dungeons. So what, what are the typical services um, that men seek, or I say men, but clients seek in these places? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it really, it depends. Uh, there's so many different things that people could look for where, um, you know, maybe some of it is a lot of people like spanking, I guess, you know, so in terms of pain play, um, the majority of people would, would like spanking. There are fewer people that like more intense sensation play, like with whips and things like, you know, people like floggings, um, which is, is, a I don't know if you need to explain what a flogger is, but anyway, it's like, uh, you can give someone a beating with a flogger and that will be a little bit less intense than with a whip because a whip will hurt more. And so, you know, there are different kinds of things you can hit people with. Um, so a flogger, uh, how, so a whip is like a leather strip and a flogger yeah, is... Yeah, like if you think of a bull whip, like a, a whip used in a dungeon is much shorter because you need like a football field for a bull whip really to do it properly and safely because <laughs> those are really long. But, um, you know, a, a, a single tail whip will be like three to five feet and it's just one very thin it gets thinner at the end and that can be really sharp and bitey when you hit somebody with that um whereas a flogger 
has a handle and then it has many strand, many like leather strips hanging from it that are equal length. That's like maybe a three, two or three feet long. I don't know. And there's like maybe 30 of these strands. And so you can, it can, that can actually be really lovely for people. I've heard people describe it as like a, a spa treatment where it's like really gets the circulation going. <laughs> but, um, you know, cause usually those are lighter, but you can still be painful, but you know, people sometimes just want sensation on their body and that feels really good to them because that's the way their neurons are wired for whatever reason. And it is psychological as well as physical. Like I think all of this stuff translate to a connection between the mind and the body. But so there's pain play, but most people are into spanking uh, hmm. in terms of pain play. And I don't know if that's just because of it, it can vary in intensity so much. And there's so many different ways to do it. You can also use a paddle for that, um, which can be more intense. But um, and there's other kinds of pain play, like with different parts of the body. Um, but then there are a lot of role plays. A lot of people want to do role plays, which could be like some kind of power exchange where someone is in the dominant role. And it could be a typical roles like student teacher or like a boss and an employee. Or it could be um, there. I, I remember people coming in wanting to do like superhero fantasy roles like, you know, the as just really anything you could imagine that or or like or like age play where someone is a parent and someone is a child playing you know a child or um you know I'm trying to think of different role you know just all sorts of role or like even like like a married couple but just you know some twist to like something that wouldn't normally happen happens and it you know they play out this fantasy to a certain extent I don't, I don't think I realized that, that there are, so is there like a costume closet or something? Or? Well, some people are into, it, there doesn't need to be costumes involved, but some people like that too. Okay. And so you dress, dress in a certain way. So people will come to the dungeon, uh, for lack of a better word, to just play out a fantasy that is not directly sexual? Um, it may or may not be sexual for them. Like okay. they, It might not seem like it would be sexual normally, but... Um, for them, it's very exciting and it turns them on. And then sometimes people would, you know, that's it. You know, they're turned on. Sometimes people would masturbate themselves um, because they're very excited and they want some kind of a release. But um, but oftentimes it would be just those things. And trying to think of what other kind of things would happen. Um, so, I mean, I really consider everything a role play, even like the pain play like doesn't have to be a role play but anytime there's a a power dynamic happening i consider that a role play like because you're playing the role because we could get really esoteric and philosophical about what power means because like you know what does that even mean it's a social construct and we can define it however we want to but um there's common understandings obviously but uh you know but we're playing i'm assuming like if i say i'm dominant with my partner then I'm I'm playing the role of dominant. It doesn't mean I am dominant. Like, what does that even mean, right? Right. You know, it means that that person is agreeing to be submissive because they want to, because they like it, but that doesn't actually, like, what does it mean to actually be? It's because we are exchanging power and agreeing to it, and we're playing those roles for that period of time. And so. is it for the feeling? Is it is it the power exchange to for the participants to feel the experience of being sure. um, submissive or dominant. yeah to feel that way because it's exciting because it 
it turns it turns them on in a certain way and um maybe allows for other kinds of interactions to happen or like that's often the backdrop for then other things to happen or maybe that's just it and it's just the power exchange is the important part and then anything else that happens is ancillary to that um, for some people that's the case too and the power exchange in these situations is usually clients come to be submissive right or do they actually come to be dominant as well they do yeah i think most of them come to be submissive and here's why it's because we're talking about we agreed that the majority of clients are men for mostly for financial reasons but i don't think that's the only reason why it's mostly men i think also because um it's very easy for men to be dominant in and not pay for that because in the society we live in, men are socialized to be sexually dominant and women are socialized to be sexually submissive, even when they're not thinking about it or agreeing to it. If people, especially when people aren't thinking about it in mainstream world, like what we would call vanilla, which I, I don't say with any kind of pejorative undertone, it's just like a word to use, but some people take it that way. Um, Anyway, like, you know, sort of typical sexuality, there's a, there, there's power exchange happening. It's just not thought about really or stated because if you ever think about relationships that you've been in, unless you're really purposefully saying intentionally to your partner, we are egalitarian. We, we are not exchanging power. Like we're coming at this as equals. Um, what's happening when you don't do that, which nobody really does that. Let's be honest, right? Very few people do that unless they're kinky and they're like trying to not be or like they're saying like, we don't want to do that right now um, because we're not trained to think that way. So most people in like in the majority of society come together with the ideas that have been given to them like, oh, I'm in a male body, which means I'm sexually dominant. And this is not a conscious thought. This is just what we come, you know, and they're having sex that way and they don't realize that they're doing power exchange. So whereas in kink, and I'm kind of on this a tangent, I'm not sure why. No, keep going because I, I want to follow up with a question. Oh, I think I, yeah. we were talking about the demographic, like why you know they can't, like why a lot of men are clients and they're submissive. They don't, they wouldn't have to pay for someone to be dominant. Like most people, they're going to be with, like you know, they're just like it's expected that they're sexually dominant, and you can work that into like vanilla sex pretty easily if they want to. Or it's, easy, it's an easier sell because you're already there and you're just saying it out loud. Or maybe they just do it. They really should talk about it first because the thing about kink is like it's very consent focused and it's spoken about. It's a verbalized consent. It's not like we both seem turned on so we're going to do a thing like that. Would, you know? Well, this, um, I, mean, I remember you saying or maybe writing about this exact thing uh, yeah. when, when you were a student 11 years ago and it made so much sense, right? Yeah. But of course, you know, it's not that hard for a man to find a submissive partner, but maybe... Yeah. Um, finding a dominant partner with the kind of rules that he's interested in might require. Right. Um, either it's either they're nervous to do it because they feel like uh, they'll be judged for it or somebody won't be into it or it'll be hard or they're afraid to do it. Um, this These are a lot of reasons why people go to sex workers. So because it's like it's it's accepted. They're not they're not going to be judged for whatever they want to do uh, usually. And, um, I mean, there's certain times when that happens, but in general and, um, yeah. And so they can come and they can be submissive without having to explain themselves. And so most clients to answer your question in a very roundabout way is that most male clients that come in are submissive, but I do, there's certainly where people that came in as switches, which meant 
they wanted to like turn the tables. They wanted to do part of the session as dominant and part of it as submissive. And often it would turn out in that direction, like start out dominant and then go end up submissive because maybe that was a vehicle to them accessing submission. Or sometimes they would come in and they would want to play as a dominant with someone just because it was, you know, that was, you know, easy for them to do in that. Maybe they're, they have a partner that, that won't play that way. And so they want to come in and like, you know, do their thing. Yeah. Actually a phrase I learned was top from the bottom. Yeah. Um, which is a, which is a useful phrase. You can use that in all sorts of contexts. Yeah. Um, and I think you used it in the context of a, a problematic client, and which comes in in this essay or this story that you wrote. Um, so talk a little bit. I want to move on to your to your therapy work eventually, but talk a little bit about that those difficulties um, in this kind of work where you you have a guy who ostensibly comes to be submissive but then isn't. I mean, what are the difficulties of this work? What are the psychological um, hurdles that you have to deal with with clients? Uh, I think, so I think about it when I think of your, when I hear your questions, I, I, I know you're asking specifically about the professional world, but when I hear them, I'm letting you know that I think of, I, I separate my answer from like my lifestyle experience from my professional experience. Cause there are two different answers to that question. Okay. Because it's because in a, in a professional context, it's a service that you're providing in, and all really all clients are topping from the bottom because they're coming in, they're saying what they want. Um, and you're a service provider, even though you, like, you know, usually you're acting the role of a dominant, you know, you're, you're, it's really a role play because it's even more of a role play because they're, they're coming in and paying and they're really in charge of the session. Um, Arguably, even in lifestyle, the submissive is in charge more so than the dominant because they are more likely to end the scene with a safe word or like you usually you would check in more with the submissive who has the power to stop the scene sooner or change the scene because things are happening to the submissive, even though a, a dominant or the top can obviously stop it at any time too. But um, so in terms of like who's in charge in the scene, something that's counterintuitive, it's usually the bottom or it's usually the submissive and we don't think of it like that. And that goes for professional or lifestyle. But yeah, topping from the bottom um, can be really annoying, but it can also be fine if that if you understand that that's the context that you're playing in, like especially in a professional context when someone, you know, wants to be submissive, but they also want to tell you exactly how to be dominant, which can be annoying, right? Especially if you like being dominant in a certain way. But if you're more flexible and you're like, this is my customer, I'm going to do this the way they want, then that's not a big of a deal. And I probably was writing about it from a space of being like, I just want to be dominant the way I want to, because I have a way that I like to be dominant. But yeah, and I, cause I don't remember specifically, but I think that that's the tone that I was using when I was writing about it. So it's really fine to top from the bottom, <laughs> if, especially if everybody agrees on that. Right. But sometimes it's not discussed and it's just a way of behaving. And then you're like, oh, okay. So here's how this person is. I'm wondering if we should go over some some terminology here. Uh, so vanilla just means like, um, how would we define vanilla? Like, like conventional non, non, sex, non kinky sex, right? Yeah, non kinky, um, conventional sex. Usually the goal is penis and vagina intercourse um, with 
a male orgasm at, at least and ideally a female orgasm also. Okay. Right. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> orgasm focused and it's usually intercourse like penetration right. focused. Um, and so then uh, safe word is just in BDSM circles. I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> it's, it's good to know. I mean, it's good to clarify. I mean, safe word, um, uh, that's just a word that's used to stop the scene. So, yeah. And I've, I've never heard that scene before. So um, okay. a scene refers to um, a specific act of play or a yeah a scene like in the in the in the kink scene so there's the kink scene which means community really um or yeah demographic right and then there's a scene which is the same thing like in in vanilla sex or like regular like regular with air quotes sex um it's like the time bounded period of when you're like having sex with someone which includes foreplay and uh, like start to finish sex like a, a session or a scene um, it's like, it's the time bounded, it's a period of time and context when you're doing kink or like some kind of, it's know, a cinematic thing. phrase. It I mean. is. And we talk about playing, uh, instead of having sex, like the, it's really like, I have a play partner, um, which means is a person that I do kink with. Um, it, it, you know, um, so yeah, it is, there are a lot of cinematic and role play. Like these are all really cinematic terms and I think it's to emphasize that you know it's a very intentional and um, like sense of either really heightened reality or removed from reality or somehow you know intentionally the focus is on something like that I think that's why that terminology is used but a safe word is can be one word or it can be a phrase or it can just be language uh, or it can be um, a body movement because you know Let's face it, sometimes you can't speak when you're in, in a scene because you've got something in your mouth or because you just forgot how to speak because you're in subspace, like because you're in an altered state of consciousness and you're like literally don't remember words correctly, which in a good way, like, you know, but you need to make an alteration. And so you like tap out, like maybe you tap your hand twice or if your hands are tied, like you like nod your head or you're like whatever the agreement is. Or it can be a word like typical safe words are like red for stop. Because that's really easy to remember for most, like we, we learn that as children, that red means stop. Um, or mercy is another very typical safe word. Or it can be a word, sometimes people need a, a, a totally different kind of a word to, so that it's very clear, like, like um, eggplant or something, you know, or just like some word that they know that they can remember that is so obvious and can't be mistaken for anything else happening in the scene. Like, because someone could say, you know, mercy or say other words like no, for example, and that might not be understood if, if it's like a humiliation scene where someone is supposed to be feeling really like um, appearing to be upset or something like that, then it's, you need like a more clear safe word to stop the scene immediately because, you know, or, you know, what I usually do with partners, um, my, in my personal life is I communicate a lot because I really like to talk a lot during. And so I don't really use safe words, but that's because I'm always using real language to like ask questions and, and I'm not using like fake language to do that. Like what I, when I, and my partners know that. So I, you know, so, but it's important to have a mechanism for safe, the concept of safe word, I guess is the point. Well, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Um, because I think as part of your bio, there's a point at which you realized that kink was a part of 
your way of being in the world. So yeah. um, maybe talk a little bit about how this all started for you. Sure. Uh, people learn that they're kinky in so many different ways. And I think it just depends. It, I think uh, people ask me a lot at, in therapy as therapy clients, you know, they want to know why they're kinky and there's, there's no answer to why. And the reason I'm noting this is because it's, you realize that you're kinky at different points in time. And some people have always known since childhood they can pinpoint like the, the moment of imprint, like, which is when some, something occurred that flipped the switch inside of the kinky switch inside of them that made it obvious to them and their awareness came about. And so depending on how your life goes, that switch can be flipped at any time. And I really believe that, um, we have a, like a, like a inherent, like biological predisposition for our, like our nature and then for our sexual nature, and then it might may or may not be expressed. And then there are environmental inputs that, that flip the switch and like make it obvious to you like, oh, I'm kinky. Let's define kink because I think kink is going to be central to the entire conversation. Is it the opposite of vanilla? Is it basically uh, non-vanilla sexuality? It's such a complicated question because I think it's actually not a complicated question. Let me contradict myself. It, it really means whatever you want it to mean. It's, it's, it's a really self-defined, it's self-defined. Um, so like for somebody who only does what pe most people would consider kinky sex, which is like, would be like atypical sex. If every once in a while they have like typical vanilla sex, that could feel really kinky to them, you know? So that's what I mean by like, it's very self-defined. But the way I'm teaching a class on sexual health now and the way I define it for, for like in, when people want to know what kink is, or I actually define it as, you know, there's BDSM, which is bondage, uh, domination, submission, submission, sadomasochism. Um, and there's kink, which I use interchangeably. And I say kink more often because it's one syllable. <laughs> and I like economy of, you know, I like to use syllables uh, more often than in some other places, but whatever. Anyway, so like, but I feel like kink also incorporates fetish and role play and like BDSM says specific things. And to me, it incorporates those things also because in power dynamic, I think is the basis for all of it, like an explicit power dynamic. But um, so I guess really what most people think of kink is like anything that's more atypical sexuality, like um, where the goal isn't necessarily intercourse or, you know, typical orgasm. So, so things that are less typical, really. And so you were beginning to talk about the point in your life where you realized this is something that interested you. Yeah. So for a lot of people, they know specifically. And for me, like I was working on other areas of, of growth, you know, I, I interacted with, like I, had sexual preferences for different genders very early, like from my teens. But in terms of the kind of sex, and, and I, and, in hindsight, I realized that power was always very important to me uh, and that I could always feel it, but I just wasn't aware of it. And I didn't become aware of it specifically until some point in my 20s when I just um, was able to really notice more, like, you know, be more in tune with, more present with the kinds of, 
sex I was having with people and just things that would happen. And I would say, oh, that that was interesting. And I would start to think more about it. I just, for whatever reason, I was ready to think more about it at that time. And then once I did, I started honing in on that and go, moving in that direction. And it was power specific, that power is sort of how it- For me. Expressed itself, yeah. For me, yeah, that became like, I just started noticing when there was an explicit power dynamic or, you know, something different like that, then I would, you know, be more into it, be more present, be more turned on. And in like, I wanted more of that, you know? Uh, so then I started like, you know, I stopped, like, I started calling out the other type of sex that was less interesting to me, which is more typical sex and going in the direction of, of that. So it was, you found an interest in, in the dominant position or just the power exchange in general? Yeah. Well, it started out just in general and I was very curious about that. And once I began, began learning, it was clear that I was gravitating more in the dominant direction, which for, so I'm female bodied. And so people like me who are born like me with the way that I look and everything, I am, like we were talking earlier, like I've been conditioned to be passive and to be sexually submissive. And so that's how I started out because I didn't know that there was an option. Like that's pretty much where in our culture, where most people start, it might be slowly changing now, but it's still the case, right? For most people. So that's where I was too. But then once I started really paying attention to myself and seeing like, even where I performed better, you know, and what like felt better, but I was also better at it. I was like, oh, this is just better and more fun and like more of who I am. And I think in our 20s, we're figuring out who we are anyway. Like this is really part of development. Like your your prefrontal cortex finishes forming between in like middle to late 20s. And so your brain's not really even done forming till your late 20s. So, you know, that's big part of identity formation too. And with life experience and everything. And were you drawn towards men or women or both from an early age? I like to say all. Okay. Because there's more than just two genders, but. Um, and were you yeah. aware of that concept when you were young, that there's more than two genders? Did no. you? F no. Okay. So that's um, a newer vocabulary or understanding for you? <clears throat> I mean, so I'm in my late 40s now, so newer than when I was in my 20s, but yeah. Okay. I came to understand that more, I think, in my early 30s. And so was there a... Was it a natural tr uh, progression to becoming a professional dominatrix for a while? Was it something that you thought, well, this is going to be more enjoyable than... So uh, when I was doing personal play and then how I did that, <clears throat> it was really a function of um, efficiency. Like I was going to undergrad. So it must have been when I was starting undergrad. I met you when I, I, I was in that program for like three years and I had just finished. And then I, I um, got this scholarship to go to your program in Paris, which was really exciting right after school ended. So so I must have been like three or so years into it. But I was bartending and had different jobs because I stopped the kind of work that I was doing before and then I began bartending. And I was just bartending at a place where that I didn't like at all. And, and bartending is really difficult. Like it's really hard. It's exhausting. <laughs> and um, it's really like a lot of emotional and physical labor. And it's a lot when you're going to school, but I need, you know, I needed to do that because I needed to pay my way. And so I realized I wanted to quit this job and, and it just, <clears throat> I had been playing with some people in my personal life and we would play 
I'm also poly and I have been non like consensually non-monogamous um since you know since my early 20s off and on but like by preference like mostly on can you define poly real quick so polyamorous which means you know um multiple partners that i have um romantic connections with multiple partners on an ongoing basis so it's different from dating in that everyone's aware of it it's like dating multiple people but everybody's aware of it and is in agreement that that we have different partners and there's an emotional event there can be there doesn't have to be but for me i like to have an emotional connection with them and i also like my partners to know each other so that's how i do poly but at, but i sort of in hindsight realized that i've been doing that since my middle 20s without calling it that but i had a poly family in my middle 20s anyway i'm saying this because i was playing with some people <clears throat> at that time and we had played with different people and we met someone out who happened to be a dominatrix who told us that and I was like oh I, and I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me ever even though that's a thing in our like you would recognize like I knew what it meant it's just had never popped into my head before as a thing that was interesting or that I would want to do and so I kind of met this person that we didn't end up playing with for what it wasn't a good match for whatever reason no chemistry there but then I filed that information away. And then when I got really sick of this bartending job, I'm like, I know what I'm going to do. This is going to be easy. And that's why I say like, I went to go interview them because I wanted to pick a spot. And it was very easy to start doing that. Well, I want to move uh, forward to where you are now. Um, I'm curious though, you mentioned that you also go by Alex. So talk, uh, yeah. talk about your name and how that... Um... Oh, it's interesting. Um, and I don't talk about this very often, but I don't mind talking about it. Um, so I moved to New York about 15 years ago and Alex was a nickname given to me by some friends of mine in San Francisco. When I asked them to, I asked them, I asked some friends of mine to let, I wanted to be called by something else and I wanted to use it for work also as a proton. And so, um, we decided on that and I really like it cause these, these were people that were part of my former circle and, in uh in california in san francisco and so it became a name that i used for work and then it just became a name that i used in the new york scene the bdsm the kink scene in new york and really i these are the circles i run in and this is what everyone calls me and i feel comfortable with that name and uh, I I actually, this is what everyone calls me now, except for, it's funny now because my clients now will call me Dulcinea, my therapy clients. There are a couple of them that call me Alex because we, they know people that I'm connected to in the scene and that's how they come to me. And I, I don't really, I'm totally out about everything now, so I'm fine with either name. But it's just my legal professional name is Dulcinea Pitagora and then my nickname basically, which used to be my scene name. Was now just my nickname is Alex, and that's what. And I I prefer it because it's gender neutral, and I'm I'm gender fluid, and I like to some feel more masculine sometimes than feminine. Even though I generally people perceive me as as pretty feminine presenting, but I like the flexibility in that. So gender fluid, another another term to define. So how that's you... another term that's really up to the individual their definition of it, but. For me, what it means is sort of non-binary, like I, um, so cisgender means um, a cisgender person is a 
a person that's either male or female slash man or woman who just feels that way from birth is was assigned for example male at birth and they've all never questioned being identifying as a man does Whereas, cis stand for comfortable in skin <clears throat> it is it doesn't it's actually a, a like a latin prefix like that's okay. the opposite of trans okay and it just means aligned okay but that's it that's interesting that's a terminology that's out there it's actually not an acronym and i've heard i've seen people capitalizing cis as if it was an acronym and it looks like yelling to me and it's really frustrating to see that i'm like can you stop because it's not an acronym and they don't know but that's i appreciate you bringing that up because um i was thinking about that the other day but it's it's literally just it's just a prefix and it just means aligned it means like the same and um so it means the same like male and man whereas non-cis would be like male and something other than man and it doesn't have to be female or like feminine it can just be non-binary or like so for me um i don't identify as like a cis woman or cis female because i don't always feel like like i don't i don't call myself a woman that feels odd to me it doesn't fit I do feel female, although my body is changing to be a little bit more masculine. I started taking testosterone last year so that I could fit, like, become more muscular. And that's just a sort of a body modification goal of mine. <clears throat> but, um, you know, and then I could not be, because throughout my life, I've really hyper feminized myself as an opportunist. And, like, because that just suits my frame and, like, the way I look really well. And, um, allowed me to be very successful in a lot of ways, like especially in the sex work industry as a sex worker, like being hyper feminine is really ideal. What's worth pointing out, since this is a podcast, not a video, like your persona was sort of pinups or sort of traditional. Very hyper feminine, yeah. Right, like, blonde, curvy. Lots of makeup and yeah. heels and yeah. So um, it, an interesting thing happened and it's kind of a tangent, but I guess it's worthwhile. Uh, sure it is. Uh, to say that, you know, I really have always felt pretty gender fluid, but just nobody would really recognize that. In my personal life, some people did. And, you know, we would act accordingly and it wouldn't be so much about the way I present as, as our physical, again, the power exchange or our like whatever exchange was going on. But so for me, uh, feeling gender fluid is really just that fluidity and like not having to... Um, just identify as woman or, you know, I sometimes act more in a more masculine way or in a way that's not typical feminine or, you know, and sometimes want to present that way. I noticed on your website, uh, you mentioned preferred pronoun, which is they, am I writing? I don't, I actually, I, I usually what I write is, is she or they. Okay. Um, and because I don't really have a, a firm preference. I don't really use masculine pronoun. I mean, I actually, I will in certain scenes, like with certain partners, but that's pretty rare and that's very specific. And so I don't ever even talk about that, but usually, but I'm totally fine with people's projection, which is usually feminine pronouns because I appear really feminine usually to people, but some, I have some people, some friends of mine or other people that will use they for me, which I'm really happy with too. So I don't really have a strong preference. There are usually Oftentimes people will have a more strong preference than I do. And that might change for me. I don't know. We're sitting in your office, right? Yeah, this is my, my office where I practice. So you're a sex therapist now. Mm-hmm. And describe what that entails and how you differ from your average sex therapist. 
Okay, sure. Um, so I'm a psychotherapist and a sex therapist. So I'm all pretty much all sex therapists who are trained in sex therapy. So I'm so I'm a licensed psychotherapist for one by New York, and then I'm a, a certified sex therapist through ASECT, which is like I, I think it's the largest governing body for sex therapists, and they are just guide providing guidelines, you know, for training. And um, so everyone, part of a prerequisite of being a certified sex therapist is having is being a licensed professional in psychotherapy. Right? That comes so first, and then that has to come yeah. first. And so every sex therapist has the same basis of psychotherapy that any therapist has. That's a pre- that you have to to be a certified. There's plenty of people calling themselves sex therapists that don't have that. You just want to know, like, well, what are your credentials if that matters to you, but. If you're working with a certified sex therapist, then they have the same base training. So I do psych- I do psychotherapy with people that in- doesn't involve sex therapy. Like I work on issues related to like depression, anxiety, trauma. That's not about sex therapy, right? So I'm just making the distinction of, of what that is. And then sex therapy is extra training. So it's additional training in gender and sexuality and relationships. So it's just like a specialization um, that you, it goes beyond typical psychotherapy training. And so that can be like sexual functioning also, like uh, the way bo- people's bodies perform, it's things aren't happening the way, the way they want it to, or relationship problems, or um, yeah, just stuff related to sexuality or gender, like things are changing, or they don't understand something, or they're troubled by something and they want to work process that. So that's what sex therapy training is about. And my specializations come from where I, who I am. And I'm, I'm a little bit unusual in the therapy, in the, in the field of therapists and also even sex therapists because I state very clearly what my identifications are personally, which is that I'm kinky and that I'm poly and that I identify as queer and that I'm gender fluid and I'm a former sex worker. Really, nobody does that because people don't want to, and that's fine. They don't have to. That's their private stuff, and they don't have to. And typically, therapists don't because they want to remain more of a, a blank slate to be projected upon. But I don't practice that way. I mean, I want it to be as neutral as possible, but people come to me because they know that I have a personal experience in, in, one, of these com- in one or more of, the, of these communities and that makes them feel comfortable and they know they're not going to be pathologized or judged in that way um, in any way <laughs> or um, that I'm going to have I'm going to know what they're talking about without them having to explain it to me because there are plenty of therapists who wouldn't judge them but just are clueless as to the language they're using or might second guess like is that okay that you're doing that or like I'll I'll, I'll always ask people clarifying questions because I don't want to assume that when they say spanking, it's what I think of as spanking because even something as simple as that can be very different. It's all about self, you know, determination and identification and de- definition. But, but so that's my own personal specializations are in those groups. So a lot of sex therapists will be practicing with, you know, mainstream um, people in the mainstream, more mainstream groups like more vanilla sex um, practicing people. <laughs> Um, well, you're the part of your brand is Kink Doctor, right? Yeah, and so then I started making this web series called Kink Doctor because really that's my deepest, like you know, frame of reference and experience that 
that I can talk about with people that I can help people with. And, and I really enjoy it talking about it. And so I do. Yeah. I definitely brand myself. Like that. And is there an extent to which part of being a kink doctor is helping people identify kinks and give self permission for kinks or is it people coming with mm -hmm. already identified kinks that are just want specific advice within that realm? Yeah. I mean, I would never try to lead someone in the direction to, to show them like, Oh, what you're doing is kinky. Like I, you know, if they discovered that on their own, that's totally possible. And that's something that happens or they, someone might come into therapy and think that they're doing something wrong. And I'll say, well, why do you think that's wrong? And usually it's just, it's like, cause that's not what anyone else does. And it turns out there is, there are other people doing it. There's almost always somebody else doing something in the world. There's people don't talk about it. So we don't know. So sometimes someone realizes, oh, I'm not doing something that's bad. I'm doing something that's kinky and I can do it in a healthy way. Right. And so in that way, it is giving themselves permission to be, to be kinky or to do sex the way they want to do it. And that is what a lot of people come in for because I mean, we're taught that there's a right way to do sex and it's with a, a dominant man and a submissive woman, but don't talk about being dominant and submissive and, and put the penis in the vagina and have an orgasm. Like that's, I, I'm sorry if that sounds reductive and I know it does and I apologize to everyone who, because that's wonderful and that can be done in so many ways. And like sometimes people are doing that kind of sex and they are also doing kinky sex and they don't know like, so I know a lot of people who will like smack their partner on the ass if I can say ass on your podcast, if you don't mind. And, Please, um, say, okay. say whatever you want. Ass. And so like, it, and the, but people don't think of that as, th as kinky because, and I think the reason why, and you, you can maybe chime in on this and say why you think why, is because it's just very prevalent. And so then does that mean kinky is what feels taboo and what feels not prevalent? I don't know. Does, does like having regular type of sex, like air quotes regular sex um, to you, do you feel like, like just like grabbing someone or like squeezing someone really tight, like bordering on rough sex. Like there's a phrase called rough sex. Like why isn't that? Sometimes that's exactly like kinky sex, but you just don't think about it. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think maybe sometimes that's, there's societal norms too, you know, like mm -hmm. um, in the 1990s, suddenly there was a lot of women's magazine articles about the man's prostate, you know, the, the, oh, the yeah. clit of the man. So there was a lot of, finger anal insertion sex yeah. happening in the 90s not because it was oh it's kinky. still happening now right well i'm saying <laughs> i'm saying that suddenly out of nowhere it was like it was not a kinky thing it was part of of sort of hyper specialization of pleasure you know yeah um and so maybe it may have been seen as kinky in the 80s but then suddenly it's just you know it's a lifestyle right. magazine here's it's number 47 of 50 ways to pleasure your man type thing. And so I think well, that there's other corollaries about that line between what's kinky and what's in the glossy magazines. You're right. And that, that's a great point because the way that we think about it changes just culturally, you know, cultural context. Right. And the prostate, this is what my dissertation is on is actually on um, male straight men who receive anal sex, who like to receive anal sex and they're from men or from or women from women okay so they identify as straight and they like it when women penetrate them and um i'm comparing kinky and non-kinky groups because there's plenty of if like for i found reddit groups you know this website reddit oh yeah <laughs> there's a subreddit about um 
uh, well, they call it pegging, which I, in, in some of my writing, I recently published a paper that talks about issues I have with that terminology. I just think it's, I think it's great if you have a word to communicate the kind of sex that you want to have. I'm not going to stop anyone from doing that because I think that's super important. I also think like maybe we can start thinking about why there needs to be a separate word for anal sex for straight men. I mean, I just question that. Like, do you need people to know you're straight? Like, why is it so important to say like, I'm straight and I'm a man and I want anal sex. Why can't you just say, I want anal sex from my female part? Like, you know what I mean? I think that it's worth thinking about, but I don't want to go into that too much because I never want to discourage someone from using the word pegging to get anal sex because they should have all they want. Like they should have anal sex consensually, like obviously like any way that they can do it. But so tangent aside on Reddit, there's a subreddit for pegging and there's two, there's like a non kinky one and they very clearly distinguish it because some people in their vanilla sex, it's not kinky at all for them. It's just the way they like to get pleasure and male bodies have the prostate, which female bodies, arguably don't have like there's some um there's not a lot of science but there's a little bit of science around uh like fetuses or infants it's the same spot and it turns into the g-spot for women and the p-spot or the prostate for men so it might be the same thing but it's in a different place it's accessed differently and in male bodies it's accessed through the anus and through anal sex and it is like an intense amount of pleasure I feel really, really, I, I feel strongly and I feel bad for all these men out there who are not having anal sex because they think it's emasculating. Like I just had a conversation the other day with someone who like is learning to feel very masculine while being penetrated. I'm like, that's great because he wants to feel masculine. He is masculine. He's just not like the brand of masculinity that won't allow that. That needs to protect their masculinity so hard that that is that kind of pleasure is not allowed, which... I, it just baffles me. It's like I've, I've seen the kind of pleasure that that can create in, in masculine people. And why would you not want that? Like it, if you could experience that, I don't know. I, I won't ask you your opinion on it because I know it's like personally because it's a very sensitive subject. But why? Like why does it? Anyway, I'm very interested in that. That's why I'm working on my research for that. But, but the point is, is like, yeah, that can that what's kinky really changes and like some things don't have to be kinky. I forget what we were well, talking that, about at first, but it was something it, that long. It, it, it ties into another question I had, which is really just sort of the kink 101 stuff. And I think it's interesting that there are types of anal sex for men that are kinky and some that aren't. Um, it's just got to do with the psychology of it and power dynamics. And so what are, what are some, some basic kink categories keeping in mind it feels like you like to keep the definition fairly subjective uh, but what kinds yeah. of kinks are people identifying in themselves or maybe a little self-conscious about um, uh, how does that manifest itself categories um we could even go back to like suddenly we have this movie 50 shades of gray right yeah um, where suddenly a certain kind of, air quotes, kinky approach to sex is suddenly a movie and it's everybody's aunt reads this book now. Um, yeah. Is that kinky? Is, is um, BDSM, uh, is it fetish oriented? I guess I'm just trying to get some concrete 
definitions and examples of set of kink. Uh huh. Well, wow, that's that's a lot uh, to answer. First, you brought up Fifty Shades, so I really have to address that. Um, and you said, "Is that kinky sex?" And I have to say that that that's really not. That movie presented um, a relationship that is pretty manipulative and coercive, and very, um, very much power structured, but not like an agreed upon power dynamic. There's this man who is inherently more powerful because he's male, not because he is inherently, but so societally, right? I don't want to uh, say that he actually was, but he has that privilege of being male, and he's also very wealthy. And then he meets a, a female person, this this woman who is, you know, um, less privileged in, in several ways. Listen, they both have a lot of privilege in that they're, you know, they're white and they're good looking. But the, aside from that, there's this power differential that then he wants to have a power exchange with her and, he, and she just wants to be with him. And so she'll do anything and she's crossing her own boundaries and he's really hard selling it to her like this is the way it has to be. Um, you know, you can take it or leave it. He wasn't like forcing her to stay, but basically it was very coercive. And so that is really blurry. Um, that, that is not what kink really, that's not what, like within the community, there's this real derision for that movie because it sets up kink as like a really manipulative and coercive scenario. And it's really in practice, most of the time, the opposite of that, it's very much pre-negotiated there's a lot of ideally discussion even if it's just you know um, texting and apps or something but i a lot of people really meet in person and some people will even look at lists of things and compare like you know a checklist of activities or whatever to just make sure so it's very specific because kink like in BDSM, what do you mean a checklist of activities yeah like of some people of just different activities? stuff like do you like bondage do you like spanking um, do you like wearing a collar and being led around on a leash? Um, stuff like that. And um, But most most people I know don't do that, but I certainly know people who do that because it just makes it easier to have the conversation. It can be really difficult to have these kind of conversations. So like an icebreaker. But the point being is that the, is that the realm of kink and BDSM is so vast and it can be so many different things. That's why your question is almost impossible to answer. But I mean, no, you can definitely do major categories excuse me you can definitely do major categories but um it's really important to even with to even like i said before to to really define what the activity is for the your partner because the way that you want to experience it might be different than any experience they've had it before and so um that's what's different about it the negotiation about it and which is really just communicating doesn't have to be like a negotiation, like you're sitting at a table with, you know, contracts and stuff, but just well, communicating about it and, and getting like explicit consent for stuff before, during, and then checking in after and usually uh, is a good idea. It feels like BDSM, the BDSM world is much more explicit with consent than the vanilla world, you know, that, that the conversation is, is... That's the idea. Not everyone is because, you know, there are people who don't, you know, people who, there are always people who make, who have poor judgment in the world. Like, I don't want to sell the BDSM community as like, 
as a more perfect kind of, you know, person having sex. Like there are lots of people that make mistakes, but it is known that like you want to have consent and you want to have a safe word or some kind of communication to stuff. Like these things are common practices. These are like best practices basically, which is a lot different than in the rest of sex, like typical sex, like you don't, it's not, it's, it's changing, I think. Has the conversation changed since you have been a part of this world? And uh, I just know that in the, <coughs> the internet, which has both, you know, in both of our lifetimes, we're contemporaries, has sort of changed many conversations, be it science fiction fandom mm -hmm. or um, all manners of, you know, post-religious people or whatever, has... has um, identification with and discussion of kink become easier in the last 20 years? I think so. I mean, one of the really wonderful things about Fifty Shades of Grey, like maybe the wonderful thing, <laughs> there's probably more than one, but I don't know what they are. There, there is one, and that is it really has opened up discussion. And so just in, in terms of awareness, even though a lot of the discussion has been contentious, and maybe has given people some wrong ideas, at least they're thinking and then they can go and explore and hopefully correct those mistakes and, and learn more about themselves. Or at least when something is in more in the mainstream, it gives, it's like a way into giving someone yourself permission, like you were saying before. And so there is definitely more conversation and that's definitely aided by the internet because a lot of people want to do research or talk to other people from the privacy of their own home because they're really closeted about it. It's very much stigmatized and less so maybe now slowly, but it's still very much stigmatized. And most people I know personally and professionally are closeted about their kink. Does uncloseting oneself change one's relationship to kink? Well, I think it does. Uh, I don't, I think for a lot of people it is really impossible because of life and um, it's, it depends on the kind of job and like your family and your social structure. It can be really dangerous for people to out themselves. And I, I always say that I'm really privileged to be able to be, a, be out the way I am because my network and my, the family that I have, like, you know, the family I'm close to knows actually everybody in the world know, like anyone who cares to can know, cause I have all this stuff out there, which is great for me. And I can do that cause I have all the support I need. I have the kind of job that actually encourages that, you know, because of the very specific work I do. But most people don't have that. And so for a lot of people, it can be really dangerous, like maybe even physically dangerous because they might live in a culture where they could um, have like some hate crimes or something if they were out. So I think it's really, it, you know, that is a really personal decision. But I do think if it's possible to be out, it can, it's a really a move towards self-actualization, which is a good move in my book, right? Because it really lets you more fully explore yourself, understand yourself, become okay with yourself, and then just go deeper into who you are and increase self-love and, and all of that. I think it being out promotes that, but only when it's safe. You know, if it's not safe to do that, it, it kind of doesn't, it can be bad. So I like, I would never pressure someone to come out. It's just such a personal decision. Well, I was thinking there's an extent to which kink as part of a social discussion is kind of an urban thing. You know, the odds that you are going to overlap kink-wise with people is more likely in a five million, city of 5 million than a town of 300, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, in remote places, it's much more, it's still there. It's just a lot more online. Yeah. So are there resources for the, for the small town person who's trying to make sense of their own kink? Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I think that there are lots of, you know, people could just Google like whatever their local resources for kink are. But I mean, there's FetLife, which is like a Facebook for kink. Um, and the nice thing about FetLife is that, um, you can look at, at events that are posted near you. So, um, if you put in your zip code in your, in your, um, profile, you can have an anonymous. I sometimes suggest this to clients who are trying to get connected to people in real life. And I say, you can make a profile on FetLife and you don't have to put any information in there. It can be totally anonymous. Um, but what the good thing is you could put in your zip code and you click on the button that says events near me. And then you could see what people are listing. So, so it's like a Yelp or like a dating profile. Is it F-E-T-L-I-F-E? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it, it's huge. It's all over the world. And there's like so many people on it. And um, it's not so much a dating site because there's no matching algorithm. It's more like, it's really more like Facebook where you can put pictures if you want. You can like write things on it. You have a profile. In yeah, it. you have a profile. Um, but it's I, I think it's really useful for chat board. And there's discussion groups. So that's a good way to learn about stuff is that you can have discussion groups on there. But really, I think it's a good way to connect with local resources. But I think that there are other ways, just depending on the local, wherever they are. There's different chat groups and stuff that, yeah. So that sounds world. like a good starting point. Yeah. If it's, if it's everywhere, basically. Yeah. What are some misconceptions and misapprehensions about kink, um, number one? And number two, um, apart from things like FetLife, how, what would you recommend to people who are sort of curious or trying to come to terms with their own attraction towards certain kinds of kink? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the first part again? I'll ask them a separate question. Okay. The first one, what are some misapprehensions? Oh, and- yeah, right, right. Uh, uh, about kink and and just sort of unhealthy uh, misconceptions. Yeah, I mean, do you have some assumptions that you make about kinky people? Maybe not. Maybe Probably. you're different. Probably everybody does to a certain extent. What do you think that they are? And I'll tell you if I think you're right. Okay, so like getting kicked in the balls or sort of ball tortured yeah. stuff just seems so unappealing to me, right? Sure, most people <laughs> does. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's one kind of kink that. Um, to me, it just like just by my, my very nature, it's just like who on earth, why on earth would that be appealing? Yeah. You know. Um, yet there's someone who is very attracted to that. Yeah. I'm not sure how this ties into my question, but um. Uh, Does it okay? So I'll tie I mean, it in. Is that for seen, you. Is it seen as a pathology? I mean. Yeah, that's that's the tie-in. Yeah. A lot of so like because you can't and you're you don't want to say it because you're a person who's like wants to, who is open-minded and wants to allow room for something that doesn't make sense to you, right? But another person might say there's something wrong with that person, right? And, and really pathologize that. And so the extension of that to kink is a misconception that we can talk about, which is there's something wrong with people that are kinky. Like they're doing this because there's something wrong with them. And that is definitely not the case. There's, it's, it's a healthy behavior. It's part of people's sexual repertoire that, repertoire that can be done in a, a healthy way. It can be done in an unhealthy way. Just like other, all, any kind of sex can. It's really the same thing as any kind of sex in that you can do it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So it's not any more um, 
it shouldn't be any more a target of pathology than any other kind of sex is the point. There's no science behind that whatsoever. There are certainly people that are have mental illnesses that do kinky sex and and they do it um, in tandem with that. But that again, that there are also people with mental illnesses that do regular sex. Like there are people that do non-consensual sex. And honestly, like I don't even see like it might look like kinky sex, but if it's non-consensual, then it's just like uh, assault, you know. So that that's a total misconception and it's people it's an interesting thing to think about. We could go on and talk about it in terms of like misogyny and like sexism. Um but it's really the same thing. So that's that's not a thing like there's no science behind um all kinky people have been traumatized in childhood and therefore that's what makes them kinky. Um no science behind that whatsoever. And I would say that for some people, they find their kink through trauma and it becomes a mechanism to, of mastery, which means to transcend it and to make it a positive, to like, you know, feel positively and get pleasure from something that was traumatic. Um, and then other people, they never had any trauma at all. And they just discovered this kinky sexuality um, and they've had like the same kind of, you know, and then there's people who have had trauma and they're just not they don't have the kinky predisposition, so they find other ways of healing their trauma, I hope. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Many do, and then some don't. And so then, you know, it's, it, the point is, is like kinky people are just like anyone else is, is basically the bottom line. Is, is there an extent to which some of your work is, is working people through the stigmas? Yeah, that's like the vast majority. Of really? It, sure. Yeah. There's that, and then there's also when your partner is different than you are. That's the other big, big one. But... I get it's still a big majority of people working through stigma. And jumping back a bit uh, on the whole misogyny thing, it sounds like uh, like consent is 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 the difference between horrible behavior and and yeah. um, kinky. Yeah, play. I mean that again. That goes for any kind of sex. Right. But yeah, definitely. Like if someone's saying like, "No, this is BDSM," but my partner hasn't given consent, they're like, "Actually, that's not BDSM. That's sexual assault." So. Right. Since since there's an extent to which this is a one-on-one level kink discussion with the kink doctor, is there anything that we haven't covered or anything that would be good to leave people with? Well, oh, I think your other question was, yeah, something about what how people can explore more. I mean, I always recommend people find people to talk to in in real time, like in real life, face-to-face, because there's just something about the kind of validation and learning and like it feels good to share your experiences and to talk, to ask someone questions. And it, it's, um, it, let's see, in the research I've read, it's called, I think, positive um, appraisals or like peer, positive peer appraisals or something like that, or affirming uh, appraisals where uh, what happens is you talk to someone in person and then you realize that like this can actually be a good, it feels good to talk to them, be accepted. And so I always recommend to people to try to find people they can talk to in person, but that's not always an option because of where you live or you just don't feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. Um, and then you can do online research and just like do Google searches for things near you. Or you can read books like um, a really wonderful book is The, the Erotic Mind um, by I think Jack Morin. And um, 
there's lots of different kinds. I have all these books right here. Um, there's a book called Perv by Jesse Baring that's not there because I just loaned it to someone, but that's a great book to read about just sec different sexuality in general. And then there's more specific books about kink, like by Tristan Termino and um, by um, Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. There, so there's lots of literature that people can read about it and, um, you know, en engage in some self-discovery. I'm looking over at the bookshelf to try to see more, but there's just a lot. Well, I'll put, I'll put this, I'll put a resource list in the show notes for sure. Uh, and you can even email some to me sure, if, if, you, if you think of it. But Wilsonea uh, yeah. Pitagora, thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>